Scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, as well as from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, 24 to 25. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and held all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. And let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you. All right. Uh, I think it looks like Pastor Andrew's trying to memorize a lot of things, verses and, and such. So uh, thankful for his effort to bless us for the reading. And also thank you, Sam, for the prayer. Uh, did a good job there. All right. Well, <clears throat> we are continuing in our series uh, in vision, mission, and core values. And today we're going to cover our fifth core value. Uh, and I'd like to begin by just sharing uh, some of what I experienced growing up in the church. Uh, you know, when I was part of a children's ministry and, and youth group, I had very little choice in deciding who I was going to spend time with at church. You know, my church community was pretty much fixed, and I had to commit to it regardless of whether I liked the people there or not. I'm sure you can all relate. Now, I remember uh, when I was in children's ministry, for, as an example, there was one really obnoxious kid who, during prayer time, I, I kid you not, he would, I mean, this is during prayer, and everyone was, was asked to stand up usually and, and pray, and so I was a pretty well-behaved kid, um, even though I would, I would kind of feel some things going on around my feet, I would just pray, right? <laughs> I, was, I was like that, you know, a little bit maybe naive, but this obnoxious kid who was a friend of mine, he, he would uh, stoop down and he would untie people's shoelaces and then kind of retie them, and basically connect each other. And, and of course, by the end of the prayer, <clears throat> we would realize what happened and it would cause a scene. And the teachers hated it, you know, the pastor was annoyed and we were all annoyed at the same time. Uh, he would, of course, love it. He was that annoying. <clears throat> but we were a church community and he was a part of it. And so we had to bear with him and do our best to love him. Did things get any better in youth group? Uh, I would say not so much. There always seemed to be some teenage drama, love triangles, gossip, hurt feelings. Uh, Nonetheless, we had, again, to do life together. Uh, You know, really, even though none of us had much in common, other than the fact that our parents attended the same church. But strangely enough... Over the five, six years we spent together, we actually grew closer, and we created some fond memories. And I didn't realize it back then, but through children's ministry and through youth group, 
God was actually giving me a taste of what it meant to be part of a family, right? A family that bears with one another in love, even though some of the members of the family might really annoy you. Then I became a college student, and for the first time, I was given the freedom to choose what kind of group I was going to be a part of, finally, right? Uh, what college fellowship I wanted to be involved in, what, what church I was going to even attend, if at all. And as you all know, you know, college life is a very unique time because it creates certain conditions and relational dynamics that could never really be duplicated ever again in life. I mean, when do you ever experience living among thousands of other people in such close proximity in your exact same life stage, single, free, and available, and searching for the meaning of life and forming your foundational identity all at the same time. You never do unless you're on a college campus. It's such a unique period. <coughs> and that's why for the majority of us, the relationships we built in college were so powerful and life-changing. That's where many of us have found our kindred spirit, our soulmate, our BFFs. So our college years, they, they tend to put us in this very emotional high. It's unmatched. But every good thing must come to an end. And you become, after college, what? Wait for it. You become a college graduate <laughs> where life affords you the same amount of freedoms but this time, you actually have to find a, a way to make a living for yourself, responsibilities. <laughs> Nothing is just freely given to you anymore. And so you're forced to enter the dreaded workplace. And in the meantime, your community drastically changes from what used to be an intimate college fellowship to who are these strangers? who I have so little in common. So you're left with this significant void in your heart because post-grad life is not what you thought it would be. I'm sure some of you are feeling that way. And let's be honest, even your church community isn't what you hoped it would be. And that's a very common experience most of us could relate to. One big problem, though, is that most of us want our communities to be like the love boat I mentioned last Sunday, right? This luxury cruise ship where all of our felt needs are met. And so we form communities based on our personal preferences, like who I have the best relational chemistry with, right? Who has the most appealing personality, and who I share a natural affinity with. Right? We, we become very choosy that way. And the sad reality is that many people treat church in the exact same way. And so we first want to know what's in it for me and for my family. Right? That's the love boat mentality. But the church is meant to be a different kind of community. <clears throat> and that's the main point that I'd like to drive home for us today. Okay? So, famous chapter, Acts chapter 2, this passage, it describes a picture 
of the early church during the time of Pentecost. Right? Pentecost was one of the annual harvest festivals that brought many Jews together from various nations. And so there were Jews not just from Jerusalem, but from other parts of the Roman Empire. And that means many of them were from different cultures, and they spoke in different languages. Right? They were virtually strangers, sometimes even enemies, you can, you can argue. Now, humanly speaking, there was no way that all of these people were going to naturally congregate and be united as one. But by the work of God's grace in unifying them right, through his spirit, we see this beautiful picture emerge of unity established in the early church. In verse 41, the verse that comes right before the passage that was read, this says that 3,000 people were added that day to the church. And so this was not a small group of people. God was rapidly growing the church during this period. But here's where many people make a mistake. If, if you think that because of what you read here, that the early church was this problem-free perfect community, then you're not thinking very clearly. And every now and then, I hear people say something like, you know, why can't the church now be like the church then, like the early church, like what we see here in Acts chapter 2? And so I normally respond to such people with, look, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to be like the Acts chapter 2 church, but I'm telling you, trust me, uh, this picture is not meant to be a comprehensive picture of what the church was like. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, no doubt, but it's not the whole picture. Because once you bring a lot of sinners together, even if they're saved and even if they're given the Holy Spirit, you're eventually going to have problems, right? More people, what? More problems, especially when a group is so diverse like the one we see here. I mean, you think about this way, brothers and sisters, Virtually all of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament are addressing churches that essentially sprung out from this miracle at Pentecost. And all of these churches virtually were facing serious problems. Paul writes of internal division. Paul writes of sexual immorality, of doctrinal error. And his letters are addressing these problems. Right? The church was struggling with all of these things. It was a divided body. And so we really should get rid of an idealized picture of the early church. I mean, the Holy Spirit was powerfully at work for sure, but the devil was actively at work as well. And people are people, let's face it, right? Wherever you find people, you're going to have problems created by human sin. So, one of my pleas to you this morning is that, brothers and sisters, please do not live with a myopic view of the church solely based on what you read here in Acts chapter 2. Because if you do, you're going to get very easily discouraged when you see the church failing to meet these lofty standards that you have constructed in your own minds. The way you become more balanced as a Christian is by remembering that there are also passages like Hebrews chapter 10 that was read. Once again, verse 24 and 5, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what this tells us is that, see, even the early church struggled to maintain unity and to live up to God's expectations for his church. It wasn't easy for them either to regularly gather and to fellowship as a community. If they didn't struggle, there would be no reason for God to tell them not to give up the meeting, is my point. They had to be encouraged to fellowship with one another because it's never an easy thing to do. Because their Christian community was far from perfect, just like any other Christian community we find in our day. But this picture of the early church, it does give us hope that by the grace of God and through the work of the Spirit, that it is possible for people who would normally have no business doing life together to grow in love and in unity as part of members of Christ's body. It's possible. So, brothers and sisters, given our own flaws and imperfections as a Christian community, how should we go about building a healthier community where there is unity as well as appropriate forms of diversity? And I'm going to mention just three things that I would like all of you to put to practice. Okay? And I, I trust that you will <clears throat> be prayerful about it and discern if this is in fact God's will. I believe that they are. And I can make the list longer, but I chose due to time just to focus on three things this morning. Okay, so number one, Practice godly contentment by appreciating what God has provided for you in the present, okay? In the present. Uh, this, this verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, is a verse that I find myself going back to pretty often because I need it. Because my heart, like your heart, it tends to grumble and complain about life and the things that I experience in the present moment. But here's what the verse says. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. <laughs> Have you asked that question to yourselves? Why were the old days better than these? I'm guilty of asking that question many times. My family moved here back in 2009 from Philly to Virginia. Back, back then, it was just Joyce, myself, and the older two. The younger three were born in Virginia. But see, back then, life was so much easier for all of us, not just for my family, but <clears throat> for the ministry, you know? It was only just like a, a good 10, 20, maybe 30 on a good Sunday after church. We'd just all go to Myunga Kimpab and eat some Kimpab together right, in the same restaurant, right? No need to, like, <clears throat> split. We'd all be together just traveling <laughs> one place to another. It was very intimate, very simple life. You know? Would it be right for me to say, why was 2009 so much better than these days? Yeah. Or how about the question or the comment, my college years, my college years was so much better than these. Or... My time at my other church was so much better than these. You know, 
or 2019 pre-COVID so much better than now, this chaotic time we're living in. You kind of see how your heart can grumble so easily. Well, consider Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. <clears throat> Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, right, whatever situation, okay, whatever situation, I am to be content. What does that teach us? That teaches that godly contentment is not produced by a change in circumstances, right? Godly contentment is a disposition of the heart, right, so that no matter what your circumstances are, <clears throat> you need to learn how to remain thankful and to be content in the Lord. Think about when <clears throat> the apostle Peter and the other, others were physically beaten in Acts chapter five. We cover this together through our, through our Acts series. They were beaten by the Jewish council for preaching Christ. And do you remember what they did? It says they, they left the presence of the council rejoicing, not grumbling or complaining or cussing the authorities, but they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. How is that even possible? It's not possible, humanly speaking. But it's possible if you trust in the Lord's wisdom and how he governs the world and how he chooses to sanctify us as his people. If you can trust in that, if you can trust in God ultimately, then you can respond in such a supernatural way. Then you will understand the folly of asking questions such as, why were the old days better than these? Okay. Always looking back, regretting the present. Right. Always being disappointed. Always complaining about something. So learn godly contentment. Be thankful, be grateful for what God has provided for you in the present Secondly, center your, center your relationships more on Christ and less on self. Now, what I want to focus on here is that, look, when we center our relationships more on Christ, we will become more gracious and less choosy, right, less picky in how we form relationships with others. Thank you. We're connecting today. <clears throat> I mean, think about the time <clears throat> when you were a young child and how you drove your parents crazy because you were such a picky eater. Right? I mean, it's true for most children, and I know that I'm, I was no exception. I mean, I loved everything that was not good for me. <laughs> Anything with a lot of starch and a lot of sugar, right? French fries and tater tots was the, be the best meal, amen? <laughs> Potato chips and chocolate were the best snacks. They still are. <laughs> and I only ate vegetables because my mom would force me to eat them. Sometimes I would spit my broccoli or a cauliflower out. I mean, why does cauliflower look so nasty, right, even now? I would complain about how they looked and how they tasted, and, you know, I would, I would say stuff even knowing that it was like the best food on the plate, you know, best for me, right? 
Most of us were like that. We were once very picky and choosy eaters, which means we were very childish. <laughs> That's a childish trait. In contrast, when you become a more mature adult, you learn how to, with a grateful heart, receive all kinds of food without grumbling, right? I confess, I really don't like steak that's cooked well done, okay? If you like steak that, that's cooked well done, I, I think I know one or two people in, in the church, don't be offended, right? You're lost. <laughs> you need help. <laughs> Seek some counseling. Okay, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> But I really don't like steak that's well done. I mean, why, why, why would you eat steak that's well done, honestly? You know? You're missing out. You're missing out on the joys of God's creation. But the thing is this. If, if you invited me over for dinner and you cooked steak well done, I'm not going to complain or grumble. I'm going to pray, prayer of thanksgiving, thank God for the meal, right? And I'm going to eat it without, you know, causing a scene. It's not going to be the best steak I've eaten, right? I might kind of like slide in the comment saying, you know, it's better to eat steak um, medium rare, right? Medium rare is the best, best steak. But I'm, not, I'm going to eat it you know, with a grateful heart. That's what mature people do. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to choosing community, <clears throat> we can be too picky as well, right? And again, to be too picky means to be childish and selfish, The way community life is typically practiced in the world is just like that. Though it's very selective. So I like the things they like, they like the things I like, and so we create these small huddles, right? <clears throat> whether it's based on our socioeconomic levels, whether it's based on our political interests, the same age bracket, <clears throat> the same life stage, the same school, right? I mean, you all know what that is. I'm not, I won't give you a hard time this morning, but you, you all know what that looks like. We, we, we form communities based on the same hobbies or the same sports teams we love. I'm, I was apologizing to, uh, well, why would I apologize? I just said, not that I apologize, I said, I'm sorry, David Kwan, that your, your Eagles lost last Sunday. You know, he said he was devastated for the first 30 minutes and then he got over it. But uh, it was a great game if you haven't watched it. You know. um, but, you know, we, we love our sports teams. And honestly, if I wasn't a Christian, my church would probably be something like the high school swim community that my older kids are a part of <laughs> or the baseball community that I've been involved with for several years now. In fact, my five-year-old will be starting his Little League career this spring and I'll be coaching his team. I'm excited about that. <clears throat> and some of you already know this, but for many families, right, youth sports is their church. It becomes like a religion of some, some form, right? And if you're not into sports, then you, you, you pick something else. It could be like sort of like a politics thing. That, that becomes your, your idol, your, your religion, and you become so passionate about that one thing. It's basically your church. That's your community. I mean, that, that's how people naturally 
are. We build our communities based on what our natural affinities are. But in contrast, the Christian community is meant to be different. It's a fellowship of grace, and it's meant to go beyond the natural affinities we share with one another. Right? It's supposed to go beyond your Myers-Briggs, okay? So stop talking on Myers-Briggs all the time. <laughs> we can still have a fellowship, even if you don't understand, you know, an INTJ. That's what I am, by the way, okay? <clears throat> I'll go so far as to say this. Right? Don't think that you're going to find your soulmate or your kindred spirit at church. Now, I know it happens, and, you know, if it happens, then praise God. See, but we, my point is, we fellowship with other Christians, right, not because we find them particularly attractive or because our personalities click. We fellowship because we serve one Lord and because he is the common bond that unites us as believers. You understand that? I know you do, but it's, it's hard to practice, isn't it? I'm not sure about you, but for me, when I meet new people and I know they love the Lord, even if they may be a complete stranger to me, I actually feel a special bond with them. You have to know what that feels like, guys. I mean, this is, this is of the Lord, right? You meet a, new, a, a completely a new person, a stranger, but you learn that he or she has a heart for the Lord, guess what? You should feel a special bond with them. You know, in some way, I feel closer to such people than someone I may have known all of my life who is not a believer. I've had that experience many times. I, I recall, you know, going, going through seminary life, really connecting with these Kenyan brothers, strangers to me. No idea who they were, but we were living in the dorm together. They had a heart for the Lord. We, we, we bonded right? just because we love the Lord. That was our common bond. His blood shed for us, our affection for Jesus. I would bond more with them than any Korean American who showed no interest in the Lord. Right? And I hope you can relate to that because that's the power that allows Christian community to transcend all of these other natural forces that tend to divide us. <clears throat> you know, one of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. Okay? I'm not going to reenact the scene. Um, I don't feel like it today, okay? <laughs> but, you know, the, the movie offers an example, of a really helpful example of strangers and natural enemies, right? This, it was a time where... The, the black and white communities were deeply, deeply divided, and, and uh, this, this football team, right, they, became, they became like this, uh, the impetus for, for transformation throughout the community, but it first started with them. It first started with the team captain, the two team captains, right? Uh, Gary and Big Jew, was it? Julius? Right? During one of the, the practices they had, right? They, they, were, they were hating each other. All of a sudden, something happened internally, and they decided to uh, put down their differences and to express solidarity as captains. And that 
in effect, transformed the whole team and even their families and their communities. Gary, basically, he gave up his friendship with his white friends, and he told his black teammate that he's now like a brother to him. You're my bro, right? We're brothers now. During biblical times, the Romans were the ones who would forcibly segregate people. That's how the world generally works. We're, We're divided by all these different factors. But see, in the church... These same people who were divided in the larger society, they they would call each other brothers and sisters. It was truly a countercultural phenomenon. And historically, it's the church, I want you to know, that led the way to desegregating Roman society. And that's one big reason Christianity exploded the way it did, because people would see what was happening in the church, and they'd be amazed. They'd never see anything like it. That's why Jesus says, by your love, they will know that you are my disciples. It's a supernatural thing. It doesn't happen anywhere else. People usually hate each other when they're divided by the aforementioned things. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you should only form relationships with other Christians. But... Know that even your non-Christian relationships should also be shaped by your commitment to Christ, okay? Because our mission is what again? Our mission is to raise up mature and equipped disciples who are committed to faithfully building their lives upon the foundation of Christ. That's not just meant to be this empty corporate statement, okay? It's meant to be lived out by individuals, by members of the church. And if you believe that, right, ultimately your friendships with believers and unbelievers, will be transformed with that purpose in mind. Thirdly, and lastly, I want to say, brothers and sisters, let's build our community with the end in mind. See, build community with the end in mind. That means tempering your earthly expectations, not becoming so discouraged because the church maybe fails to meet your expectations or standards. If you get so discouraged about the imperfections you experience in this world, that may mean that you have what's called an overrealized eschatology. Okay, eschatology is the doctrine of the end times, okay? You have this overrealized eschatology, meaning you expect heaven to be perfected here on earth right now based on your timing, based on your wants. Like, are you someone who believes that perfection is attainable here on earth? And that's got to be done now? That justice, peace, poverty, and a perfected community can be obtained in this life? Then you have what's called an overrealized eschatology. And you'll, you'll inevitably grow discouraged and become cynical about all of life. So to combat that, I want to read a story for you, okay? I'm going to read from this book. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book titled Every Good Endeavor, and in this book, uh, he shares a story of J.R. Tolkien, okay? J.R. Tolkien, if you don't know, is the author of The Lord of the Rings, the massive work. Uh, And J.R. Tolkien, I, I learned that he began to despair at some point in his life due to the thought that he may never complete this work that he's be, he began, right? He was afraid. What if I don't complete it? 
And so let me, let me read a portion of this. This was not just a labor of a few years at this point. When he began, when Tolkien began, the Lord of the Rings, uh, he had already been working on the languages, histories, and stories behind the story for decades. The thought of not finishing it was a dreadful and numbing thought. There was in those days a tree in the road near Tolkien's house, and one day he arose to find that it had been lopped and mutilated by a neighbor. He began to think of his mythology as his internal tree that might suffer the same fate. He had run out of mental energy and invention. One morning he woke up with a short story in his mind and wrote it down. When the Dublin Review called for a piece, he sent it in with the title, Leaf by Niggle. It was about a painter. In the first lines of the story, we are told two things about this painter. First, his name was Niggle. The Oxford Dictionary, to which Tolkien was a contributor, defines Niggle as to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. Niggle was, of course, Tolkien himself, who knew very well this was one of his own flaws. He was a perfectionist, always unhappy with what he had produced, often distracted from more important issues by fussing over less important details, prone to worry and procrastination. Niggle was the same. We were also told that Niggle had a long journey to make. He did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was, was this taste was this t- distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. <clears throat> Niggle continually put the journey off, but he knew it was inevitable. Let me jump a little bit. Niggle had one picture in particular that he was trying to paint. He had gotten in his mind the picture of a leaf and then that of a whole tree. And then in his imagination, behind the tree, a country began to open out, and there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and a mountain's tipped with snow. So he worked on his canvas, putting in, in a touch here and rubbing out a patch there, but he never got much done. There were two reasons for this. First, it was because he was a sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to get the shading and the sheen and the dewdrops on it just right. So no matter how hard he worked, very little actually showed up on the canvas itself. The second reason was because he had a kind heart. Nigel was continually distracted by doing things his neighbors asked him to do for them. In particular, his neighbor, Parrish, who did not appreciate Niggle's painting at all, asked him to do many things for him. One night when Niggle senses rightly that his time is almost up, Parrish insists that he go out into the wet and cold to fetch a doctor for his sick wife. As a result, he comes down with a chill and fever, and while working desperately on his unfinished picture, the driver comes to take Niggle on, on the journey he has put off. And the story goes on, but it doesn't end there. After death... Niggle is put on a train toward the mountains of the heavenly afterlife. At one point on this trip, he hears two voices. One seems to be justice to the, the severe voice, which says that Niggle wasted so much time and accomplished so little in life. But the other gentler voice, which seems to be mercy, counters that Niggle has chosen to sacrifice for others, knowing what he was doing. As a reward, when Niggle gets to the outskirts of the heavenly country, Something catches his eye. He runs to it, and there it is. Before him stood the tree. It was his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt her guest, and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift. It's a gift, he said. The world before death, his old country, had forgotten Niggle almost completely. 
and there his work had ended unfinished and helpful to only a very few, but in his new country, the permanently real world, he finds that his tree in full detail and finished was not just a fantasy of his that had died with him. No, it was indeed part of the true reality that will live and be enjoyed forever. That's a great picture to live by. It, it points to the fact, brothers and sisters, that any work that is done for the Lord, in the Lord, is never done in vain. Right? That is God's promise to us, right? in the Lord, that your labor is never done in vain. That the investment you make now, okay, I mean, this book talks about all sorts of work, but we're talking today specifically about our investment in building community. Sometimes it may seem so futile to you, right? It's like, why can't we get anything done in the right way? You may complain about personalities. You may complain about inefficiencies, right? You may complain, you may complain about just relationship barriers that can't be overcome. It's, it seems in your mind just so useless, so futile, but the promise is this. Right? Your labor is never done in vain. Right? You may think that you're just kind of working on this leaf and you, you'll never get to the tree, but see, there is a tree in the end. That's the point. God will gift that to us. So there's going to be continuity between the work we do now, the investment we make now, and what we will reap later on in the world to come, in the life to come that God promises for all of us. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. Don't fall into despair. Let's continue to plow, plow ahead even though this life, as we know what and experience, is never, never feels perfect, never feels truly right, but that day will be coming, right? And they'll be given to us as a gift. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, if you left us to ourselves to form a community, our community would be just like any other community, very self-seeking, self-serving, self-glorifying. But you have given us your spirit, and it's by your spirit's power that we are made different. By your power and grace, we're able to die to our own self-interest and be more of a giving, selfless, God-glorifying, and Christ-exalting community the way the church was meant to be. Forgive us for failing to be true to our identity as your church and give us a new resolve to be a better church and a better ministry for your glory's sake. Help us to love each other better and to grow in our affection for your people, regardless of whether there is a national affinity or not. We trust in you and in your promise to complete your work of perfecting a people for yourself. And so we, we bow to you, we humble ourselves before you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.